What up? Thank you for tuning in to this eighth episode of It's a Collective Podcast. If you are listening for the first time, be sure to check out some other episodes. Um, if you listen to other episodes, thank you for sticking around, you know, as we, or as I figure this out. <laughs> thank you for sharing time. Um, on this episode, we'll be talking about mental health. Um, and what that looks like in underserved communities. And yeah, so I have a special co-host. If you want to introduce yourself, go ahead. All day. Thank you so much. My name is Kareem Paranda. I'm a licensed professional counselor and a licensed clinical addiction specialist, board certified here in North Carolina. And I'm excited to be on this program. I have a law enforcement background uh, prior to getting into the, to the mental health arena. And um, I'm really passionate about the work that I do from a preventative standpoint versus punitive and um it's good to be here well thank you for being here in my home studio (laughs) (laughs) nice setup (laughs) yeah like i said like i say every episode i'm just trying to figure this out you know gotta work with what you got um but when did you start um i guess really being pulled towards mental health was it always something that was important in your upbringing your childhood or it was without calling it mental health it was always something that i knew i wanted to do i just wanted to help mm-hmm. other people who weren't as fortunate or were in the same predicaments as i was in i grew up in poverty uh you know single parent household bronx new york and it was tough it was a struggle growing up and i knew that it wasn't always going to be that way but i had some significant challenges growing up as it relates to trial and error learning um, not having a father to really coach me or guide me to uh, becoming a man. So there are a lot of things, a lot of mistakes or choices that were very poor that ended up evolving me into the person that I am today. And uh, once once I got into the mental health field, I was able to identify vocabulary terms to label the emotions that I couldn't label prior to. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew I always felt this type of way or something was wrong, but you just couldn't really, you just didn't know what to call it because everybody else didn't know what to call it. Yeah. So everybody else was dealing with it. It was just, it is what it is type of thing. But then you learn like, oh, that's what that was. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The yeah. epiphany, the aha moment. And um, now that I understand more than I did yesterday, meaning my past, you know, now I'm just really desirous of helping others. So do you have any like children of your own? Yeah, I have four. I've got a 17-year-old daughter, uh, six, well, he's 17 now, 17-year-old son, and the twins, they are uh, nine. So it's a his, hers, ours mm-hmm. type of situation, man. Yeah. So it's a blended, blended family. Yeah. So do you, like, kind of find yourself parenting in a certain way because of your background? Absolutely. Uh, my parenting has evolved. Obviously, we all know that children don't come with a, a set of a manual on how to raise him. And um, one of the things I learned, I can say for my son, my, he was my firstborn, is how to now raise the, the younger two. They're also boys, they're twins. And there's some things that I employed uh, as a dad, right? I knew for a fact that I didn't want to be like my dad. So my dad indirectly taught me how to be a father mm-hmm. because I learned to become the expectation that I always had of him. I am now that for my children. But also there was my mother's uh, parenting style, which she's from Jamaica, right? So there's a strong Caribbean discipline. Mm-hmm. 
and you know be seen not heard that kind of things I sort of incorporated and it wasn't effective with my son mm -hmm. so I had to flip the script and learn hey you know in order for me to raise my children to, to become outstanding and awesome human beings I need to listen to them educate me on how to support them the way that they need to be supported and that was one of the biggest turning points like when my son was about middle school he was getting poor grades and I just couldn't understand it because I grew up in poverty and I worked really hard to make sure that they didn't have to go through the struggles that I went through mm -hmm. thinking that that would be uh, the platform that would help them excel but even with that creating those conditions it has its challenges because I noticed that my children don't grind as hard mm -hmm. as I do and I think it's because I've created the conditions for them to have a, a cushiony platform yeah. versus the hardcore, the concrete jungle that I had to grow up through. And so, I, you know, you know, as I'm doing this thing, this parenting thing, I'm learning as I go. And, you know, you never stop learning. And I'm still a work in progress in a lot of areas because now they're evolving into young adulthood. That brings another set of challenges and independence. And you just hope that they make the best decisions possible according to the way that you've instructed them. Yeah. up until this point yeah so you talked about when you um throughout this process how you've gained like a new vocab yeah how do you apply that when you work with well what is your target um demographic that you work with for your counseling good question now i, I am i have an affinity for working with people in underserved communities mm -hmm. right because that's where i come from i recognize that we have a ton of talent a ton of amazing beautiful people who are blinded by their pain or who are who are disabled by the emotional injuries. And so that's my ideal population. However, that population cannot afford my services out of pocket. Yeah. So I have to expand my reach to, you know, primarily, uh, I have a lot of our first responders on my caseload, mm -hmm. police officers, fire department folks, and folks with EMS. I have um, folks who can't afford my, 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 uh, my price out of pocket but I'm also now working to get involved with Medicaid so that I can be able to provide a service to the mm -hmm. community that I want to help the most. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I find it's very challenging, right? Because one of the things about offering pro bono services, free services to people who can't afford it, because that's where my heart is, is that when something is free, it seems like they don't appreciate the value mm -hmm. in it. You know, So I get a lot of people that uh, will schedule an appointment and then don't show up. Yeah. And what that does, it complicates my work schedule because Every hour that I lock in, it's got to be a dollar that comes in to take mm -hmm. care of the business. And so it becomes it becomes a very difficult task between logistics and your heart, yeah. you know, and, and trying to help. So I'm, try, I'm still trying to figure out the balance. I'm only two years into entrepreneurship now. And I'm still trying to figure it out myself on how to negotiate that so that I can do what I love versus doing what I have to do to keep the lights on. Yeah. Have you partnered with any like public schools or public school programs or anything? That's a great question. I'm in the works with that, right? So I've done a lot of speaking engagements at teachers conferences, mm -hmm. at different um, associations and to, again, just get myself out there and also educate people on what I know with my unique background. And um, it's been very difficult. It's really political mm -hmm. uh, in certain arenas. And it's not about what you know as much as it is who you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's about shaking those hands and rubbing elbows and making people feel uh, safe with you, comfortable with you. Yeah. And so it's, it's all about the likability to, you know, having to market myself as a likable person that people would want to be interested in doing business with me. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's been a task in New York. From Being from New York, you know, you really don't, you really stay to yourself. You don't really like mix and mingle. 
But I, since being down here in the South, I've sort of kind of evolved, recognizing that I am a social creature. I don't need to be isolated or introverted. I'm more of an omnivert, where I'm, I'm selective in terms of which environments I become vocal in. But at the end of the day, it's all about the relationships. Big I was, was going to ask, but you, you kind of spoke on it. Do you feel like you have to compromise sometimes? But it seems like it's been more of a growth than a, like having to compromise. Facts, big time. I can't tell you how many times in my journey I have uh, in the past sacrificed a lack of understanding of my own identity to adopt something else, mm-hmm. especially when I was in law enforcement. The badge and the uniform was my identity because I didn't have one constructed. Yeah. We're talking about a kid that came from poverty that was looking at other ideas of what it means to be socially desirable, socially accepted. And I sort of kind of put myself on the back burner because it was unsafe to be the true me. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I felt. Um, in my environment growing up, it was all about predator and prey. And so you condition your mind to be the predator and not the prey. And sometimes the predator attributes are not in line with who you were meant to be. And so for a long time, I didn't know who I was. And I found myself chasing an identity that other people would be okay with. And and, and that deprived me. It made me malnourished in my spirit Mm. and in my psyche. And it eventually led to my transition to the mental health field. Mm. I think about that because I have friends from the city and like, I'm like nice, you know, I'm outgoing. I like to speak to people. But when I go there, they be like, why are you talking to everybody? You know what I mean? Right, like, right. but it's that survival mode. Absolutely. You have to be that way in order to survive there. Bingo. And it took me a while to understand because I'm like, well, they got attitudes. Yeah. And then I'm there. <laughs> and you just think about a child on the subway going to school. Like, what, what the conversation is like with a parent yeah. and a child. You know what I mean? No so doubt. they're like. You don't want to be caught slipping or whatever right. that's like. Like I don't know what it's like, but I could imagine, you know? Absolutely. So what has the transition been like from survival mode to like being able to enjoy the experience of life? Reframing the narrative, which is a term that I, I come to discover uh, when I was doing my, my training to become a counselor. Being able to, again, we all operate according to scripts, how we feel like, what role we play in every uh, situation that we're in, whether we're a child, parent, friend sibling, we all construct this identity that other people have of us. And the hope is that the identity is authentic. So you don't have to switch it or change it up. Mm -hmm. Um, But for many people, they play chameleons in different environments, putting on the mask, putting on the makeup, putting on the shirt and tie. And all these defense mechanisms are designed to, again, keep the vulnerability safe, whatever that vulnerability is. We may or may not know what it is. Mm -hmm. And, And oftentimes with pain, the way the brain is constructed, it chases pleasure and avoids pain. So anything that's painful, we choose to ignore, avoid, not look at. We deny that it's there and we put on what we think will will shield it or, or mask it as more acceptable, more desirable and for us mm-hmm. to be safe in the environment. You said something about survival earlier, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm of the belief that a great percentage of the people in our world are suffering from undiagnosed mental illness. And that term survival, survival is typically a thing that we start to construct as a result of fight, flight, freeze. Mm. How am I going to make it out of this situation? In law enforcement, they train police officers to eliminate the threat. And when they're conditioning police officers to eliminate the threat, they're putting them in this fight, flight, freeze mode, which is the uh, sympathetic nervous system that now your adrenaline, your stress levels, cortisol, and all these things are being released to put you in survival mode. You can eliminate the threat one of three ways. You can run from it, 
play dead, act stiff, or you're going to fight it mm. and get rid of it. In our communities, and I'm, I'm a byproduct of this because I believe I've, I, I struggled with PTSD because I've seen people die. I've seen people bleed out before I became a police officer and we just packaged it differently. But there were triggers associated with like certain sounds, certain smells, certain sights that automatically trigger the brain to go into fight, flight, freeze mode. And once you go into fight, flight, freeze mode, there's no rational thinking. There's no construct. It's just impulse. Yeah. And so this is, this is where it becomes very easy. For example, if, if I got me some Jordans, right, and I come from poverty, but I got these Jordans, and anybody that step on my kicks, if these Jordans represent my value because I have no value without these Jordans... Somebody steps on my kicks, they dissing my value. Now I got to eliminate that threat mm. and it becomes easy to eliminate the threat, whether it's a gun, knife, fight, whatever it may be. Now I got to crush this. That's undiagnosed mental illness. Yeah. And this is what's happening in our communities up and down the East Coast, West to East, uh, West to South, North to South. It's happening all over in our communities, especially because when you think about our history and, and, and all the unaddressed stuff that we've been through, this stuff is passed on through genetics too. Like, you know, if, 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 if I'm always in fight, fight, freeze mode, that's chemically altering my DNA. Mm -hmm. And then that's getting transmitted into whoever I'm with. And right. yeah, so that stuff can be genetically transmitted. The, the fear based mindset can be genetically transmitted into our children because it, once our body is chemically altered through this, uh, um, overextended or over uh, time we're spending too much time in this fight fight freeze mode it alters our chemistry our, 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 our dna and then that's the stuff that becomes generational and you know oftentimes man we dislike what's also in us and so when our children display these tendencies and they respond to us in that anxiety type way it may provoke us to to become uh, irritable or whatever it may be and then now you have tension generation after generation and it doesn't get better until somebody becomes conscious enough to do something different. Mm. So you said that this fight, flight, or freeze is how you're trained in law enforcement. Yes. So it's intentional. It is intentional. And let me tell you why. It, it, it sort of kind of makes sense in the spirit of the police officer going home the same way that he came into the shift, right? We all have a, a propensity to either do one of those three things naturally, mm. right? If, if I see something on the ground, a snake for, for perhaps and I'm afraid of snakes, I might want to run from it initially, right? Because I think a snake is dangerous. Well, obviously, if I'm a police officer and I see something dangerous, I can't run in the opposite direction. Yeah. I have to go address the threat. So it's important that the default behavior in that fight, flight, freeze mode, the impulse behavior becomes go engage the threat and not run away from it, mm -hmm. as some people will, will incline to do. So now, that's the, the bonus is that, you know, if we're all gathered and someone starts to shoot, you know, we may take cover because we're civilians now. But a police officer is who we would expect to go get that guy or stop that person mm -hmm. from doing whatever they're doing. The problem with it is that if a police officer is naturally inclined to run from that threat, mm -hmm. now you're altering that perspective, that impulsive perspective, that subconscious mentality. And that can be that can become over time tragic for that police officer, because what happens is when you stay in a, at a high throttle, or, or high hypervigilant state over time, the resources that your body uses, the, 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 the minerals, the vitamins and everything to feed your organs, all of those things now are being pulled towards the muscles and the organs that are associated with survival. Your heart, your lungs, the, the muscles in your body to get ready to survive the fight. 
while you're doing that, the, uh, the rest of the organs like digestion, sexual productivity, and all these other areas are starving because the minerals are going towards the fight, fight, freeze areas. Mm -hmm. And so this is where you have so many um, health compl comp complications with police officers who have hypertension, um, high blood pressure, heart conditions. All of that's based upon high throttle living, meaning associated with the sympathetic nervous system always being active, mm -hmm. always constantly looking for the threat, looking to see where the next danger is and imagining something that may not even be there. But it's all about making sure that you're ready. Mm -hmm. And that's counterproductive to the officer's health at the end of the day, mentally and physically. Yeah. So what did you experience? Mm. Glad you asked. That's why I wrote a book called Breaking the Code of Silence, A Cop's Journey to Triumph and Truth. And, and in that book, I detail how I grew up and how I brought a lot of the, the stuff that I learned from the streets into law enforcement without even realizing that it was a problem mm -hmm. because it kept me safe. Yeah. And um, anything that works for you, sort of like you don't recognize how bad it may be when it engages with other people or the environment. And so you just know, again, you're just concerned about your own safety. Mm -hmm. So I entered into the mental health field or I left law enforcement because of a poor decision. And that poor decision was how I did not manage my mental health correctly. I didn't know that burnout was a thing mm. until I got out of law enforcement. And in that process, man, you're talking about through my, throughout my eight-year career in law enforcement, I suffered four lawsuits uh, for using excessive force. And I had uh, ended my career with two indictments of using ex excessive force while under the color of law. So I was looking at 10 years of federal prison. And it was a decision uh, or, or a circumstance that put me in a very extremely low place, mm -hmm. extremely depressed, contemplated suicide uh, to, on two occasions, and it was I was just in a lot of pain. I did not intend for my law enforcement career to end the way that it did, but I was left with the question of how and why. I was on the cusp of becoming a sergeant. I had ambitions of becoming a police chief, and all that stuff, just like that, was done. It wasn't until... My, um, I showed up for my first appearance. I turned myself in at the top of uh, 2013, turned myself in, and I sat in a jail cell. And I had a lot of time to think that day. I was there for about seven hours, and it hit me, my ego. I had developed an ego to keep myself safe in those predatory environments. And then when I got into law enforcement, put the black guy in the black community, let him police those folks over there, which is where most of the crime was, because we're talking about the underserved population where there's a lot of poverty, and everybody thinks that in, in these, most of the folks in these, these areas use the narrative of trap music and all these other um, songs that talk about the violence, the drugs, and these different things, put me over there so that there wouldn't be any uh, conditions or issues with regards to race when policing that area. And one of the things that I didn't bank on when I got into the professional law enforcement was that my peoples would, would diss me. Mm -hmm. uh, when I showed up in the hood and I'm trying to like mix and mingle and meet the people and everything, I was confronted with uh, Uncle Tom, mm -hmm. um, sellout and all these other things that I wasn't intended on being. Mm -hmm. And I was truly there to try to help. And then when I was dissed and I was disrespected in those ways, it triggered me. Mm, the ego. Yeah, exactly. Because that same ego back in the day, yo, you don't let nobody get away with disrespect. Mm -hmm. And it was still alive and well. I just didn't know it. And you had a badge and a gun. Oh my goodness, exactly. Yeah. Right? And it wasn't even me, they was dissing. Mm -hmm. They was dissing the uniform. Yeah. 
but I was wearing the uniform. But wearing the uniform, did you feel like your identity was attached to that uniform? Bingo. Okay. Exactly. And that's why it became personal mm -hmm. for me. Exactly. Because again... It's like those J's. That was, those were your J's. Spot yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. And that was what hit me in the jail cell. So it took the jail cell experience, what I call the cell experience, to wake me up or remove, remove the blinders that I had on. Mm -hmm. Because when I became a police officer, I thought I had arrived. Mm -hmm. A kid from poverty done made it, quote unquote, right? Mm -hmm. In this, in this, in this uh, government system that has all kinds of barriers and trap doors for people who look like me, but I made it in. Yeah. So I was different is what I thought until the cell experience happened. And I'm sharing this cell with a bunch of people from coming in from different jails, different prisons for their first appearance as well. And I'm like, how did I get here? And at the end of the day, what I discovered is, yo, I'm no different. Mm. How dare I thought or think that I was different. Yeah. So one of the most humbling and painful yet beautiful experiences because it was the caterpillar who went into the cocoon and came out the butterfly. Yeah. And as a result of those experiences, I became an author, an entrepreneur. And I was invited to go back into law enforcement, but I did not want to do it because I saw, I saw how the system worked. Yeah. And um, now I'm just really a strong advocate for police officers, number one, to get mental health assistance and treatment while they're in the profession. And secondly, to help uh, people in underserved communities recognize that they have the power to break free from the conditioning that has crippled them into believing that um, life is hopeless mm -hmm. and helpless, especially my teenagers. So like during that time when you were like trying to make the people in the hood feel comfortable with your presence, trying to help, but then you were also like in this gang of, you know what I mean? Like yeah. being a police or whatever. Um, were you getting support from either side? So you, I, you talked about not getting So like while you're trying to, you know, get your footing in the hood with the community members, let them know that you're there to keep them safe, but you're getting that backlash. Are you getting support from your, um, like, police community? Or are you getting, is it like a tug from both? It's a tug. It, it was extremely difficult, man, because um, you had people within the department that were not interested in positive or progressive programs mm -hmm. to help kids uh, avoid joining gangs and, and, and doing uh, um, delinquent things. Um, one of the things that I did kickstart was the uh, Rowan Police Athletic League. Myself and one of the community members got together and, and started that organization back in about 2000, I think seven mm -hmm. is the year that it was. And uh, we facilitated it and we and we offered the program to the underserved communities uh, in East Spencer and in Salisbury. And it, the program was effective, but it did not get any support from the agency as it relates to officer participation mm -hmm. and volunteering and helping and talking and communicating with the kids. It was just me. And then a lieutenant who was uh, releasing the money for the traveling expenses that the team had incurred going to different um, cities to play mm -hmm. in other PAL programs. And that was extremely disappointing, extremely exhausting, mm -hmm. because not only did I have to go patrol and do my regular function, but I also had to dedicate my time to this, this effort of making sure that this program stayed alive. And I got burnt out really fast yeah. because no one supported it. Um, anything that it came, when it came to the underserved population, yo, it was almost like, no, no, we're not interested in that, but they'll do stuff for the country club areas and mm -hmm. the schools that are in the better districts. They'll, they'll, they'll set up uh, a, uh, what they call it, 
national night out in those areas, but they wouldn't do it in the underserved communities. Mm -hmm. And and so these are messages, subliminal yeah. messages like, yo, we're, we're not here to really help. We're just here to police. Mm -hmm. But over there, you, you, you bring McGruff the dog and all these other fancy things out over there, but you won't do it in, in these underserved communities. And they got kids over here too. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's just so so political. And again, that's we're, we're talking about the South, mm -hmm. a small town. The agency had about, like, what, the time, like, maybe 96 to 100 or something officers. And out of all those officers, maybe five or six of them were African-American uh, men and women. And we were all dispersed. We weren't congregated on one shift. It's like one to each shift, if you will, broken up. And so it was, it was there. But again, my ego and my ideology of, yo, I made it, didn't allow me to acknowledge it for what it was mm. back then. And it, like I said, it just hit me like a ton of bricks when I ended up in the jail cell. Um, but Were they there to support you then? Or what in the jail cell? Yeah. Oh, no. I had officers testify against me. Mm. The, what I truly believe, the bank was that I was going to go to prison. That was the goal. Yeah. They had officers testify against me on things that like had nothing to do with the cases that were being brought before the courts. And so that let me know that this was, this was bigger than just these circumstances. It was... It was something about me, individual, yeah. me being, I guess me being a, a Yankee, as mm -hmm. they call it down here, from New York. And I didn't really play well with the good old boy network. Mm -hmm. I didn't scratch backs. I didn't rub elbows. I just, yo, kept my head focused on what it is I wanted to do. And I was trying to become a chief. And I worked on, I got my master's in public administration. And I was working on, yo, every, every promotion I put in for, I got it because I worked my butt off to mm -hmm. get it. I was on a SWAT team. I was a top gun on a SWAT team for consecutive months in a row. And these are things that were not, that the agency wasn't used to. Mm -hmm. And someone that looked like me. Yeah. Everyone in the agency, you got to where you got because you shook somebody's hand correctly. Mm -hmm. That wasn't my narrative. And I think that rubbed a couple people the wrong way. Mm -hmm. I wasn't controllable in that context. Yeah. So yeah, um, I tell you what, that ordeal taught me a lot. A lot. And so I'm really thankful that I went through it. Didn't feel good to go through it, but I'm thankful that I did because I got the wisdom on the other end of it. Yeah. And now I can educate other people on, you know, other police officers perhaps, and just people in general, how to um, um, develop the self-awareness needed to manage their careers and their lives effectively. Yeah. That's exactly what I do today. Do you feel like you were... Um, like functioning in your purpose when you were a police officer? Do you feel like it, not like large scheme, like, oh, mm -hmm. everything happens for a reason, mm -hmm. but like oftentimes when you feel purposeless, mm -hmm. you have to have things to give you value, you know? Sure and when you don't know the purpose of something, abuse is inevitable. Right. So if you're not functioning in your purpose, you have kind of like an identity crisis and you talked about like, you felt like you were struggling, you know what I mean? Like Absolutely. to really connect within. Absolutely. So when you're like doing that though, you had to be doing it for some reason. Was it only ego driven or do you, like what was it like? Spot on. So when I graduated, right, I attended Livingstone College, man. And I graduated and I was caught in a dilemma. Of what did I want to do post-graduation? Mm -hmm. Counseling was a thing that came on the radar of a thing to do. I'm like, I like that. I could do that. But my ego said, nah, that's, that's a profession for women. Mm -hmm. Women only listen to people's problems and talk about them things. Yo, men don't do that. And you're like, yo, I was, I was strong. I was a football player and I was always like swollen and whatnot, fast and athletic. I'm like, yo, I can't, like the ego was like, yo, I need, I need to do something physical. 
So my whole life has been about physicality, fighting and football and wrestling and things like that. So I need law enforcement sounds like the ideal thing because mm -hmm. that's a profession that can use this physicality. And then also I could mentor the youth. I can mentor the kids. So there's that purpose of... Bingo. Okay. Exactly. And what happens is kind of funny. You mentioned that question. So I, I did law enforcement for eight years. The last two years, year and a half or so, I transitioned into the schools to become a school resource officer. Mm -hmm. And that's where I found the greatest fulfillment of doing the work. Yeah. I was I was, a, <laughs> I was an SRT. I was, a, I was a SWAT team member who worked in the schools <laughs> it was weird yeah. i don't think that's anywhere else I, I don't think that goes together but it i did that yeah and but that's where i found the most peace the most love the most fulfillment working with them kids at at the uh, middle school I, I became a football coach mm -hmm. wrestling coach and just participated in creative programs even, even for the school a beautification club a chess club and the kids loved it mm -hmm. i i thrived there but again my ego was still present yeah. in, in, in various areas. And again, at that time when, when school was out, I had to go back to patrol for the summer, for the summer program. It was like a summer program that, that the agency did a special specialized summer program. And it was during this summer program where the lawsuits started popping up. Mm -hmm. And um, we're going after high, high profile, you know, drug dealers and people, felony warrants and all this other jazz. And um, we got to a lot of fisticuffs that summer. And then slowly but surely, things, uh, use of force reports, complaints, and all these things. And then it came to an end mm -hmm. in um, 2010. Mm -hmm. So then you were left with just you, your body, in your body, your ego, battling your purpose with no one to support you. Word. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I tell you what, though, that jail cell, though, Hey, sure enough, man, that's where I buried my ego. Or yeah. I began I began the, the trial against it yeah. because I recognized how it failed me. Mm. It kept me safe uh, in, the, in the hood when I was growing up. It yeah. kept me safe there. Yeah. So I had no reason to discredit its validity or its ability, right? Mm -hmm. And so it became a part of me. And it's like, like if we're playing a card game, right? We can play a ton of games with cards. But let's say... You only know how to play spades, and I only know how to play poker. And we're at, we're at a spades table, and you dish me the cards, and I try to play poker at the table. That don't fail. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why I recognize in that jail cell how my ego didn't work well in this environment. Mm -hmm. And it should have been, been cut and clipped and caught way back when, but I didn't yeah. know. But you have, like, I associate it with, like, a toolbox. Yeah. You have these tools, and you need these tools to no survive. Doubt. No doubt. You know, but when you transition or you start embracing life more and focus on focusing on surviving less it's like these tools don't fit over here exactly you know? and so then you're kind of like okay well where do i find space for this do i put it away i might need it later or do i just get rid of it correct and you're kind of forced to like really evaluate and do that inventory right yeah yeah and one of the things like you know you can't unlearn anything that you've already learned and you cannot unsee anything you've already seen uh but one of the things i've learned is that the more tools you have, the more equipped you are at handling life, right? You know, like those Swiss Army knives, you know, they got everything on it. You know, if we can become metaphorically like the Swiss Army knife, we can do a multitude of things. We become very skilled at managing ourselves effectively. Um, one of the things I had to learn were the rules of engagement uh, in whatever environment I was going in to figure out how do they do business in this environment and adjust and tailor 
myself to this new rules of engagement so that I'm not caught slipping out of bounds or I'm not getting penalty flags thrown on me. I want to make sure I understand the rules so that I can be effective at winning. And, you know, some people call it code switching. Um, and it, it is sort of kind of like that. I, I more prefer the term of, of tweaking what it is you currently have. And just, again, understanding the landscape without modifying yourself too much to compromise your own set of values. Mm -hmm. And if your values are, are, are ideal with helping others, then, you know, any adjustment that's in the vein of that isn't too much of a big deal. Yeah. But it's not really like having to compromise, though. Because I feel like co-switching is more like you give up part of you mm. and put on this whole new persona. Yeah. Where it's kind of like just knowing, okay, this is a space game. I got to bring my space. You know what I mean? Sure not. And this is tongue, so I got to bring my tongue skills. Just yeah. kind of knowing like that Swiss Army knife, knowing what tools to pull out in what space. Bingo. Um, but I feel like people who may not... Mm, see it that way or may not know their tools and what their um, intended uses are or whatever mm -hmm. would get would feel away about someone else doing it so no that's doubt. why we have the code or the term code switching period because everybody doesn't know how to use their tools and put them Facts. away so they feel threatened by you being able to do it because they can't do it <laughs> yeah, you know yeah so i feel like that's the only reason why there's even a word for it word. because it's really just like how we're supposed to you know what i mean right like, a lion knows that it can't be the big lion when yeah, it's yeah, trying yeah, to hunt. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, it knows no how to kind of, okay, this is the situation Facts. right now. So I don't think it's, like, a bad thing. Right. It's, like, something that's super necessary because we're in a very diverse exactly. space. Sharing all this space with all these people, you know? Facts. Yeah, yeah. And that's how you, like, build relationships. Knowing, okay, I can't be all out over here like this. You know? Spot on. Whatever it is. Whatever <laughs> it is. You're not going to wear your club clothes to check. Correct. <laughs> But people, some people do, do and right. then they look at you funny, like, I mean, if you know right. the church, you know, like, I don't know. True, true, true. So what is some advice to kind of, like, helping people embrace those different tools and finding space for tools? I think um, that's a great question, and it's going to look different for everybody, but I think it first begins with accepting you as you are, mm -hmm. and um, without the judgment that you speculate or assume others will have about you, um, I think that's, that's paramount your own acceptance, your own validity, your own ability to love you is vital to um, creating and identifying uh, creative ways through the imagination of how you can plug you into the environment. Mm -hmm. um, that, that piece is critical. Everyone is not going to like you for whatever their personal reasons are, mm -hmm. whatever their personal biases are. You got to be okay with you mm -hmm. in spite of how people may boo or not cheer you whenever mm -hmm. you're doing well. It can become very easy, depending upon how we were raised by our parents. Those primary relationships really take a toll on us or do, do, a, do, a, do a number on us if they weren't healthy. And we got to now um, uh, recalibrate that compass mm -hmm. and, and the way we look at the world. Uh, because that, those things can, negative experiences can cause us to look at the world negative. It's sort of like trust and love. If you've ever been betrayed before... Most people suspect that you trust hurts, love hurts, mm. but it's not supposed to. It, it, and it's, in fact, love and trust are pure. Those things don't cause any harm whatsoever. It's the people you give it to mm -hmm. that didn't understand the value of those things that hurt the, 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 the trust and the love that you gave them. And so it's, it's, it's really important to keep things in perspective. Like people who have insulted me or hurt me in the past, I got to recognize that they had 
hurt within them to cause them to hurt me. Hurt yeah. people, hurt people type of thing, right? And I can't take that personal when they probably couldn't help themselves. Yeah. So I can't hold myself hostage to a painful situation that is no longer active or current in my life. I'm just hurting myself right. when I do that. That's why forgiveness is for who? Self. Yeah. It's, for, it's for self so that I don't have to stay attached to what this my, my thought of process of what this person did to me. Yeah. So um, many people have a hard time doing doing that because they feel like people don't deserve forgiveness. It's not for them, it's for you. Yeah. But that's that ego again. Huge. For me, it's like, well, who was hurt by this? Your spirit was hurt? Did it physically hurt you? Are you uh, dead? You know what I mean? Go. Did it just hurt your feelings? Who was really hurt by this? Right. And why? Why? You know? Right. So did it pierce that ego? Yeah, that hurt. But you're... My thing where I'm at right now is kind of like less ego, really less ego, yeah. but also kind of acknowledging that ego is kind of essential. Um, that's how we interact with people. That's how we, you know, no doubt. to an extent, but it's like, if you have too much of anything, it's no good, no good. you know? Yeah. So what would be some, I guess, tips to kind of acknowledging ego? So one of the things is this, um, and I share this with a lot of my clients, right? If you get upset today with um, anyone, anyone sort of kind of like pisses you off or gets you upset or disconnects you from your happiness, you got to understand that whatever that person did isn't the thing that pissed you off or mm-hmm. disconnected you. It's in fact what you think about what they did that pissed you off or disconnected you from your happiness. And that thought process is based upon a pre-existing condition meaning that there's a past experience that this current situation is reminding you of. When you when you are able, right, if the sympathetic nervous system doesn't over, supersede your cognitive function or block the messages from getting to the cognitive area of your brain, you can critically think, okay, why is this bothering me? Or why does this bother me so much? Or why does this make me upset? When you start to do the investigation mm-hmm. on these things, you can deactivate the triggers, mm-hmm. these proverbial buttons that people push, if you will. Um, But it it requires you to have a sense of acceptance, forgiveness, and closure to past hurts Mm -hmm. that have never been healed. Because many people become adults, but they're still living according to that childhood pain. And they don't recognize it. They think that the defense mechanisms they put in place have worked, Mm -hmm. so they're good, until someone bumps into that injury by what they say or do, and the next thing you know, we got conflict all over the Mm -hmm. place. So it definitely, I would encourage people to connect with someone that they trust. Trust is a hard thing to come by in society today. Um, If you can't find anyone in your circle that you trust, get with a counselor. Find a mental health clinician and who's objective and and, and speak to them about what it is. And they can give you some insight to initiate that investigation Mm -hmm. so that healing can occur. I look at uh, emotional injuries like physical ones. So take, for example... Um, you know, here in North Carolina, you got Cam Newton. He's got a bad foot injury. And so as a result, and now Cam Newton is, a, is an amazing athlete. Prior to the injury, he was putting up great numbers and doing well, helping the team win, made it to the playoffs and all sorts of jazz. But with his foot injury, he's unable to perform. Mm-hmm. Emotional injuries work against us in the same capacity. We're only going to go as far as the injury will allow us. Because out of these injuries are fears, shame, guilt, regrets, all these kind of negative emotions that keep us stuck from being our best version possible. And so if those injuries are present, it it behooves us to make sure that when we're triggered in whatever environment, we have the wherewithal to say, hmm, why does that bother me the way that it does? 
I need to figure that out. And more than likely, it's always going to come back to people, places, and things associated with your childhood mm -hmm. that were never resolved. So you have these open wounds. Big time. And that, that, that are potentially infected. Mm. And Band-Aids don't fix these wounds. Yeah. They, they need stitching and penicillin and everything else. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Wow. It's like when you have these conversations and you learn this stuff, you're able to not take things personally. No doubt. It's just like you have a Facts. whole new scope or a yes. whole new lens that, yes. that you see people with. So it's like, I guess we'll transition, you know. <laughs> but that's why no it's doubt. so important to get this into underserved communities. Because like you said, they don't have access to... Quality health care, quality right. mental health care, right. exactly. But like, even more importantly, I feel like it's so essential to get this into schools. Because mm -hmm. because we have hurt parents mm. bringing up, raising, teaching, cultivating the minds of... According to that hurt, yes. Right, and so yes. it's like, now you got a hurt person bleeding out all over this pure person. You know what I mean? And Facts. then they're going to bleed out onto other Ain't people, no. and it's just a bloodbath. And know? guess what? It becomes a norm. Yeah. It's like what we do. Yeah. Facts. Because we got these tools and this whatever. <laughs> you know, this is how we function. This is how we survive. Yeah. But it's like... I don't know. And it's difficult to then teach a child something in a school setting or after school or whatever and then have them go home Bingo. because they're not in control of that situation. Exactly. And they could be like, hey, mom, I learned this coping mechanism, but because mom doesn't know how to cope, it's like frowned upon. F like, nigga, you better get tough or Facts. whatever it is, right. you know? So it's like, how do you see that happening? Because it needs to happen. Right. So like, do you see it happening? And then how do you see that happening? Yo, critical, critical question, right? Because I am of the believer that it takes the village. The village has been dismantled. Mm -hmm. Make no mistake about it, right? Intentionally. And of course. Yeah. Of course, to create the conditions that we're now talking mm -hmm. about. And it, it, that's how you keep us disenfranchised. That's how you keep us disabled mm -hmm. from, from being our absolute best or living according to our greatness that's embedded in our DNA. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's, it's definitely by design. Uh, I just came back from a conference about two weeks ago up in Virginia where I was at a teacher's conference educating them on how to read through oppositional defiant behaviors. Mm -hmm. When a child is stressed, right, again, that child is only focused on how do I avoid the threats, how do I survive, and when a person is in survival mode, they cannot learn effectively. So a child may come to school and put their head down. Mm -hmm. It's no disrespect to the teacher and their curriculum. You know, it's about this child, is, their mindset is focused on challenges and problems that they don't have solutions for in their personal life. Mm -hmm. Teachers sometimes are not empathetic enough, em, em, uh, empathic enough to read through that behavior and they just think that this child is being a, a problem. Yeah. And because they, of the teacher's ego. Bingo! <laughs> Come on, yeah. exactly. Oh, you disrespecting me in my classroom in front of these other I'm going to teach you a lesson so I'm going to yeah. nip it in the bud, right? Yeah. Exactly. And then all it does, it just adds more fuel to the fire that this child is trying to figure out how to put out. Mm -hmm. And now the child becomes disinterested in school, disconnected, and now we got someone else who may potentially now become a part of the prison system. Mm -hmm. and, 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 then, and then you take music, you add music, certain genres of music, and the lyrical content um, that, that glorifies certain delinquent behaviors to, to help give a solution of how to cope with your anger, your stress, mm -hmm. and your buildup. And then that plays right into the hands of what police officers enforce. But this is also intentional. Of course. Because you got a whole lot of niggas that don't write their songs. Exactly. And they're not paying themselves. Or they ain't about not, that life. They're not going to get paid unless they rap about it. Exactly. That, you know? 
So it's, it's like, they're conflicted. They're in a uniform. They got the J's on. They don't want niggas to step on their J's and they need the J's because they don't know who they are. So they're going to poison the minds of our youth, you know? Spot on. So this dilemma, it, it's 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 multi-woven. Mm. And um, it's going to take a, de- a, a deliberate and a diligent strategic counter to all aspects of it. And I think the buy-in has to first be established with trust. Again, we don't trust each other. Black folk have a very difficult time trusting each other. Just the other day, I went to a restaurant and um, I had a, a black waitress who, you know, I, I, I usually tip pretty well. And um, my whole goal was to, again, tip very well as I usually do. But what I noticed was in this restaurant, um, I, I was seated and it took forever for my food to get to me, right? She mm-hmm. came and she took my food, but she didn't really come back and check on me as waitresses or waiters do. But I noticed when other families were coming in, Caucasian families, mm-hmm. she took the table and she was, you know, having great conversations with them, going back and forth, checking on, checking on. And they got their food first. Mm-hmm. They came in after me, but they got their food first. Mm-hmm. And there was, there was more people there. I just had one person. And so, like, my food should have been done. Yeah. When my food came back, the eggs were cold. The, uh, the, the, the food was cold. And I'm like, hey, I can't accept this. This is not what I ordered. I mean, like, and, and the order was wrong. Mm-hmm. And so what I noticed in that, right, me being conscious about, you know, how these things play out, we subconsciously uh, either, when, when it comes to business, look for, look for a discount. Mm-hmm. When our folks are running the ship, hey, man, why don't you give me a hookup or a discount mm-hmm. with this, right? And, or, or we will look upon each other as not valuable enough or not worthy of that proper service because again we've been conditioned to believe that we don't deserve it and um obviously i couldn't tip her i couldn't reward that and i wanted to talk to her mm-hmm. directly but it was, it was it was busy and i said you know what i'm gonna leave it alone mm-hmm. and i'm just carrying my business elsewhere but that that hurt me yeah that hurt me because it reminded me of how pervasive this this illness and these stigmas are towards our skin color, even mm-hmm. when we wear the same complexion, yeah. you know, and so it's got to be a conscious effort on everybody to, you know, look at the per- look beyond the hard exterior, mm-hmm. the hard facade that some people carry, because again, in my opinion, they're hurt, they're scared, mm-hmm. and that's just a defense mechanism to keep people away, mm-hmm. and being able to see beyond that and still treat people with love, especially the ones that look like you, and I think we can reverse it, but it's going to take everybody, yeah. everybody's effort. Yeah. I used to be a server. So serving in New York and serving down here is like completely different. Because it's like, down here, it's like, I don't know. It's just something about the culture that I had to like learn. Like Even the black people, though, you'll hear black people, they get sat at a black party and they're like, oh, I don't want the black table. But you got white people working with you, hearing you say that. So now when they come out their mouth and they say it, you can't say nothing because you taught them that, you know? So now don't nobody want to take the black table. And it's kind of like, I'm always trying to take a table, period. Just because, like, one, you have the opportunity to make the money there. And then it's like, we're here to provide a service for people regardless. You know, like, you signed up for this knowing that you might not get a tip. Right. That doesn't mean you give someone any type of service because you don't know. But you have these people who are like, oh, I know they're not going to tip because of whatever, because of a past experience. Just like you go into relationships. I know this nigga's going to hurt me because my dad hurt me or whoever. You know what I mean? But it's like, I feel like a part of rectifying that or um, fixing it is like, nip that in the bud. That conversation of, Oh, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I don't want to take that table or I don't want to deal with that person. And if you hear other people doing it, kind of saying something, you know, because people are only going to 
put in front of you what you allow. Exactly. So if we True. set a new standard for ourselves, it's like, okay, well, you have to function at the standard too if you want to be a part of my life. No doubt. And then we're forcing our friends and our loved ones to kind of raise the standard. Absolutely. Maybe not when we say it or maybe not when we make the change or think differently, but like kind of just being that light, being that example in absolutely. all those spaces. Facts. Because you're absolutely spot on. It gives other people permission mm-hmm. to, to do the same thing. Yeah. Which way, whichever way, negative or positive. Yeah. And, and we have to be accountable for that. Yeah. You're spot on with that. And if you know you wrong, that conversation is going to be harder because like, okay, I showed you this. I could imagine it like as a parent too. I showed you this behavior and I let you know that it's okay, but now I got to come back to you and say that it's not okay. Right. Even though you saw me do this, you know what I mean? And then it's kind of yeah. like, okay, well, I can do it, but you can't. And then you have that type of thing, right. you know? Exactly. So it's kind of like, just be the example, be the light. So you could like nip all that in the mind. Exactly. And that, that that work too that that takes work and some people are not willing to put the work in to be that uh, to be the accountable factor or piece that lives by the example that they preach you know some people some people struggle with that like you know you got a lot of parents I know that will come to me and t- tell me to fix their child I'm like you can't even fix your child you know more than likely your child is broke because you you mishandled them some somewhere down the road somewhere in the past you know so let's figure it out together and um, it's like do as I say not as I do mm-hmm. that. People don't buy that. You know, yeah. we got mirror neurons in our brain that validates what we see more than what we hear. So you tell me not to smoke and you smoking in front of me. Yo, you best believe I'm a smoke because yeah. like, well, why the heck are you doing it? Yeah. You know, or you tell me not to be physical with people, but you with me. It you know what exactly. Mean? Like, but it's OK in order to establish power. So now right. you have this. OK, I can't wait to what my kids type of mentality, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. I remember I, I couldn't wait to whip my kids because I felt like I used to get a lot of whoopings, right? But mm-hmm. I know, like, how I am. And I, I always attribute it to the corporal punishment no because doubt. I was because there was this fear instilled or because there was this certain understanding that if I did this, I'll do this. I didn't do a lot of things. I yeah. still acted up, you know what I mean? But yeah. I didn't do everything that right, I wanted right, to right. do. But then I had, like, a little brother and a little cousin who didn't get whooped as much. And they, like did more they pushed the limits more so my understanding or because of that experience i was thinking like okay well just associating with okay i got a lot of weapons um i behaved like this they didn't get weapons they behaved like this so now when i get kids i'm gonna give them weapons mm-hmm. you know what i mean and yeah. i'm like not yeah. even i'm in high school you know what i mean like right. not even right. really like trying to have kids but i'm right. kind of like i don't want my kids to act like Plot, exactly. or acting or whatever <laughs> you know what i mean yeah but then yeah. i like i started reading this book um all about love by bell hooks and it kind of talks about like the parent child relationship mm-hmm. and having that be the first real transaction of, or experience of love right and if it's less um of the parent trying to understand and put that work in because it's going to take more effort from a parent to understand to explain something than to whoop sometimes sure. then it's like you're establishing that this is what i'm doing telling you not to do it to other people, but, like, this is what you're experiencing. Right. You know? Right. So it's, like, this disconnect from before we're even able to speak, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes. Right, right, So it's, like, no wonder things are happening. No wonder nobody wants to love because it takes more more that time, more that energy to understand or whatever. Exactly. It's just, like, all of these disconnects. But each time we speak about them, I just think of the part that the ego plays in all of it. 
because we're even shaping the ego of the youth. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That right. reward system. You do right. good, you get this. You do bad, you get this. Right. So then when they go to their teacher, they want this or that. You know what I mean? Correct. And when they interact with other people, good or bad, that's like always there, you know? Right. So it's like the ego is like the root of all of it, kind of. And how you foster that ego. Right. How you feed that ego. Right. And what value you place on that ego. Absolutely. So do you do like, do you call it ego work when you when you do it in your practice? Or like, what does that look like in... <laughs> A counseling perspective. How do you tell someone your ego's out of control? Got you. So no, I don't. I don't specifically call it the ego unless working with a client, it's it's safe to introduce that vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually allow the space for my client to develop their own vocabulary so that it makes sense for them when they yeah. rehearse it. Um, and so I always let the client come up with the vocabulary terms to label what it is that they got going on mm-hmm. because that's the empowerment piece that they've been deprived of. And so, no, I don't call it ego, but but make no mistake about it. That's what we're working on, yeah. at, at least according to my definition of it. But they may call it um, identity. They may call it something other than. And, and so I go with whatever their definition is. And that, that's the piece that also not only sharpens me and helps expand how other people see the same thing. Um, it also gives me permission or, or to create the, the space where this client now can feel safe enough to go there with me. Because they recognize I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to invade. I'm just here to follow along on this ride with them mm-hmm. about whatever it is they want to work on. And I find that that works really well or it has worked really well for me with um, youth between like middle school and high school ages who have been in therapeutic settings and it was unsuccessful. And, you know, they wilding out at their parents' house and they punching holes in the walls and they, they just off the chain. Yo, I do well with those individuals. Mm-hmm. And the reason I do well with them is because I understand that a lot of that, again, fight, fight, free stuff that's popping up is because they don't feel safe emotionally and socially. Mm-hmm. And that's why they wild out like that. But when you create a safe environment with, with, with uh, a therapeutic relationship where they can have the space to talk, yo, you see the countenance and everything changes with that child because they've been holding this in forever. Mm-hmm. And so it's... um. It's really important that they define what it is. Mm-hmm. And I just give them, you know, nudges in certain directions, but I let them come up with the terms. And then that's what we go with. Yeah. I don't believe in, um, um, none of my clients are in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual 5. None of them are in there. They're, they're telling me who they are. Mm-hmm. I don't want to label them. I don't want to put them in a box. I want to see them for what they are and not according to these labels associated with society and these uh, this clinical, this rigid clinical uh, assessment tool that sometimes doesn't even include multicultural aspects. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I don't want to, misdiagnosing is a huge thing yeah. in mental health. And, and some of it's attributed to lazy therapists. Some, some of it's attributed to just people not having the multicultural competence on how to read what's what's considered um, um, anger versus just passionate, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, it's just interesting how everybody sees the world differently. Yeah. And, and so that's really important when it comes to someone else's life in terms of their medical history and things like that to be able to assess them properly so that they get the proper treatment um, that's going to help them resolve their issues. So mm-hmm. it's, what, it's the each is on, yeah. whatever they want to call it. That's really important. So in your practice, do you do uh, like holistic treatments or yes. do you like prescribe people 
um, to different drugs and stuff. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm not an advocate for for, for prescription meds. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe in uh, mind mood altering substances only because uh, of the concern that it can create developmental delays from a social emotional standpoint. Mm-hmm. Typically, people, you know, I don't even have a problem with marijuana because of its medicinal benefits. But most people who engage in marijuana and get in trouble for it are not smoking it for those medicinal benefits. Mm-hmm. They're smoking it for recreational reasons or to escape having to deal with life on life terms. And so for those reasons, I'm sort of anti 420, you know, but I recognize the the, the capabilities and the properties and, and how valuable it is. But if you're using it for the wrong reasons, then no, I can't co-sign it yeah. because we should not be depending upon crutches to live life. Mm-hmm. And again, only time I've seen people on crutches is when they injured. Mm-hmm. And so if you're smoking weed, yeah. drinking, <laughs> follow me, here, follow me, right? Yeah. <laughs> or you just don't know how to manage these things on life terms and we got to get there. Yeah. And then once you realize, once you're able to manage it, you no longer, you, you no longer need the crutches, mm-hmm. you know? Those tools. Bingo. Yeah. Yeah. Bingo. So yes, I I'm a firm believer of natural medicine associated with proper dieting, exercise, and I have resources that I connect people to to complement what it is that I do through my talk therapy, um, that can provide nutritional plans and things like that. Because there are things within our food, natural food sources that come from the earth that can replenish and reproduce, uh, heal organs and and again, uh, correct some of the chemical dependency that's going on in the mind. Um, if, if people are willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, again, people are so accustomed to what they're used to, and sometimes what we're used to is not good for us, yeah. but, it, but it's comfortable mm-hmm. and it's familiar, so they'll stay stuck with it just for that purpose. Yeah. You know? So it's a lot of selling, a lot of um, yeah, a, a, the buy-in, and the buy-in for me is this. If I can convince you that one day you're going to become 50, 60, 70 years old, and you're going to take you everywhere you go why not put in the work today so that you can live a quality life later on down the road versus one that's filled with uh, medication and hospital visits based upon what you didn't do correctly today? Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything, there are finite resources in the body. You know, they can be exhausted and depleted. If you exhaust it today with uh, the way you live, um, mind-altering substances, overindulging in those things, it can have some adverse effects later on down the road Mm. and do you really want to live like that and many people unfortunately don't see that far ahead and i can't blame them but you know when you think about planting a seed you know how do you get the harvest if you don't plant the seed today you know and so i try to emphasize through metaphor and 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 life experiences Mm. and a little bit of transparency as well to get people motivated about taking their future serious today okay Mm. so you have the book you yes. have your practice. What is like, what do you feel like is next or what are you moving into right now? So I'm, I'm a PhD candidate and I'm getting a PhD in public policy and administration. Thank Dr. you. Dr. Kareem. Yeah. Oh, ooh, say that one more time now. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> For real. Um, and again, yo, I'm just trying to break records in my genealogy. Yeah. You know, I'm just trying yeah. to break records. I'm doing things that, again, my mom wasn't able to do. And she was my, 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 my wonderful example of, of, of uh, becoming an adult. Her work ethic, my mother's work ethic is something that I carry with me today. Mm-hmm. So my thing is I know how to outlast pain and, and my life has taught me that. So I'm very resilient, man. Mm-hmm. And so my, my ambitions are always going to be what can I do next, yeah. right? And so the PhD, 
Um, I'm, I'm interested in advocating for policies and, and changes to current policies associated with how law enforcement officers are able to access mental health treatment without it being the thing that compromises their fitness for duty, but rather qualify them to be fit for duty, mm. right? From a, from a clinical standpoint, um, that piece. And then there's also working in underserved communities and education. And how do we work with these students who present as oppositionally defined ADHD and and um, conduct disorder without setting them up for the pipeline of prison? And granted, a lot of the advocacy, and I'm very aware of this, is going to go in the opposite direction of those stakeholders who want it to be the way that it is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Malcolm and Martin were assassinated not just because there were specific reasons why they had to be taken out mm -hmm. because of the narrative that they were educating the people on. So I'm very mindful of these things that what, what I'm attempting to do is going to interrupt the capitalistic game that mm -hmm. some are benefiting from as a result of the illnesses and, and the ignorance and all these other things that as it relates to the music um, and all that stuff that is by design put in place to keep things the way that they are. Yeah. So um, again, it's going to take a village at the end of the day. And um, but if if I sacrifice my life for this cause, yo, it's well worth it. Because at the end of the day, I don't want to live with any regrets. Mm -hmm. Would have, could have, should have. I don't live my life according to fear. I live my life according to the gain and not the pain. And so I'm cool mm -hmm. with it at the end of the day because I know I can live forever. This this vehicle, I may park it. Mm -hmm. This body that I got, but my spirit, you can't touch that. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And so I'm, I know I'm good at the end of the day. I have to ask, because I was like, oh, maybe we'll wrap it up or whatever. But I have to ask, with <clears throat> being on kind of like both sides, and by both sides, I mean like being a black man, mm -hmm. right? But also having that um, experience as a police officer, when you see cases of police brutality or people losing their lives yeah. because of excessive force, mm -hmm. what does that feel like for you? A multitude of things, right? So part of me comes from the, the, the mindset of understanding the training and how officers are trained and recognizing how officers are found not guilty in those cases based upon a, a couple of factors. Um, it's uh, the idea of I was in fear of my life, mm -hmm. right? There's that one component. And there's the other component about unpredictability mm -hmm. where you give lawful commands and the person does something other than the lawful commands you give, then now the narrative can be spun in any direction you want to mm -hmm. spin it as a law enforcement officer who may testify that why they did what they did. Mm -hmm. And it's got to make sense, right? According to your training, your policy, and the law. Mm -hmm. And if your narrative doesn't line up with that, then you're more than likely going to be found guilty. Mm -hmm. But if it does line up with that, you're going to be found not guilty, mm -hmm. no matter how crazy and weird the case looks, right? Now, the other flip side to it is this. In the law enforcement community, it's always going to be about the, the accountability of the person that invited law enforcement presence. So typically, police officers are called because there's a problem, mm -hmm. right? And so um, I'm thinking about a couple of cases where, you know, officer pulls over people because uh, taillight was out or whatever, some, some weird decisions, some weird reasons. Uh, but it's, it's a law. Mm -hmm. So you have a good reason to be the probable cause, reasonable suspicion. Yeah. The officer has a reason to be there. Um but when it goes into the area of unpredictability, if a person runs, if they resist, or if they don't do exactly what the officer tells them to do in terms of showing their, hair, their hands and all this other stuff, you have to understand, again, that the officer is already 
in that hyper-vigilant state. Mm -hmm. Fight, fight, freeze. I want to make sure I come out of this situation alive. So there's no constructive, uh, logical thinking taking place in that moment for most officers. Mm -hmm. And so if the person decides to reach in a certain direction and the hands get missing because of the training, I saw this in my training. This is what I'm supposed to do in my training. <clears throat> Double tap to the midsection to eliminate the threat. It looks like they're going to their pocket, their, 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 their back pocket, their side pocket. But that same movement also looks like they're going for a gun because guns are kept mm -hmm. within that vicinity. Now, I impulsively take action according to my training, mm -hmm. which is what I've been taught to do in a hypervigilant state. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, even though the guy was going for his wallet, it looked like he was reaching for a gun. I told him to show me his hands. He became unpredictable by reaching for his wallet. And now we got a situation on our hands. Mm -hmm. And now these things can be catch 22 armchair quarterback up, down, left, and right. But the main issue between these shootings and, and law enforcement and the relationship is that the training does not include psychological wellness or, or mental health treatment to help officers develop the social and emotional intelligence in that moment to work with someone who's doing something that's inconsistent with what they're asking them to do. Because if you tell somebody, oh, let me see your ID, like Philando Castile is one case I'm thinking about where the guy said, hey, I've got, I'm armed, I've got a carry concealed permit, and he reaches. That reaching triggered the officer according mm -hmm. to his training, and then he shot him. Messed up situation. Mm -hmm. Hurt my heart. But the training yeah. justifies that. Now, here's another thing <clears throat> that I was also confronted with when I went through my ordeal. Though I was legally justified in using force, I had to question whether or not I was morally justified. Mm -hmm. Legally justified, morally questionable, right? And no one would know that unless the person says it. Mm -hmm. So here, I'm, I got a guy. Let's say, you know, I'm an officer. I don't like a certain type of person. I pull this type of person over and I'm just waiting for them to do something to give me the reason to plug them mm -hmm. so I can satisfy the dislike. Not saying that that's true in every scenario, but make no mistake that that kind of stuff happens. Mm -hmm. And then once the person becomes unpredictable, bang, bang. Yeah, well, I thought he was reaching for a gun. Mm -hmm. And now I could justify it legally. But morally, did you really have to do that? Mm -hmm. You could have just waited. Because there are people that reached on me and went and got their wallet. And I didn't feel concerned or, or afraid of them. So it's like, you know, what's that about exactly? Mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, if, if mental health treatment was incorporated in the law enforcement training... When they become police officers, it will give police officers tools to be able to deduce this is, you know, I can, I can, it's, and it's, again, it's hard to determine who's the bad guy. The old lady can pull out a gun and shoot you too. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really hard to, to deduce that. But again, it's just this idea of you don't have to be so trigger happy or so quick to the trigger whenever you have a level of understanding about controlling the situation. And you can always position yourself a certain way to where you can take cover immediately and then return fire if need be. But uh, to be hypervigilant on every traffic stop is counterproductive to building trust mm -hmm. at the end of the day because this is where the attitudes come in. And, you know, you get a stressed out person that gets pulled over by a stressed out cop, yeah. that ain't going to go well. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And um, and then bad things can happen as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So basically, this, the training needs to change. The, train, the training needs to be modified. Uh, the training, again, the training is designed to keep the officer safe, but it's a lacking in a, in a lot of areas to help that officer 
maintain a le level of cognitive functioning during a hyperarousal situation. Mm -hmm. um, that's where the training is lacking, and that's the kind of stuff that I've been advocating for. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to see what that looks like. Yeah, right? We'll uh, see, How man. that unfolds. <laughs> that's exciting. That's exciting. Word. Um, so if you could give anybody some advice, a word of wisdom for the people to hold on to, to use, what would it be? Mm, I would encourage people to figure out ways to make their best better. That's what I would encourage people to do. And we all know the answers to it. We just got to make sure that the ego's rule of engagement doesn't conflict with that which we know we should do and, and dismiss it because it's not in line with what the ego suggests is better to do. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, man, you know, no one else can crap what you eat. And so you have to just be centered in on how you drive your car in your lane of travel mm -hmm. and not worry about who else is crashing around you. Just make it to your destination, your point B, your goal, and you'll be all right. That's another thing. Goals. Establishing goals. Making your best better. Establishing goals will give you the insight of the people, the places, and the things you need to help you succeed in that goal. If there's anybody in your life right now or places that you've been or are a part of or things that you currently do that are counterproductive to that goal, stop. Mm -hmm. Cut it out. And put the right things in place so that you can be successful. Mm -hmm. I hold on to that. That was for me. Thank you. Amen. That's what's up. <laughs> So where can the people find you? You're on Instagram. You have a website. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not so tech savvy though. I'm getting better though, because okay. especially with this PhD program, I've been so busy with public speaking and everything. But people can find me at selftalk t a l k selftalkcounseling.com. They can see me on Instagram at selftalkcc, and also on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, you know, they can purchase the book. You know, breaking the code of silence: a copy journey from triumph, uh, a copy journey of triumph and truth on amazon.com or my website and you know i'm here in charlotte you know my office is here in charlotte self-talk counseling and what you side know, are you on right. east side i'm right across from the uh ovens auditorium in the jones building right above salon central mm. okay. that's where i'm at well that's where he's at thank you for sharing this time thank you for sharing your experience your wisdom um yeah just thanks appreciate it <laughs> and thank you